teaching tonight, Brendan, right over there. God bless you, Brendan. And all of you going through Finding the Rock, head on out with Brendan to the back room. And God bless you as you go through Finding the Rock. All right, there they go. Give them all a hand. There's a bunch of them. All right. And tonight we're going to look at the fall, Paradise Lost. You know, um, as they're going out and we get ready to get into this tonight, it is so important that we have a Bible worldview, a biblical worldview, because a lot of the church no longer does. They have a cultural worldview. They see the world through the lens of the culture, not the lens of the Bible. How will you ever pray for people unless you realize they're fallen? that they're lost. Well, we're going to see how it all began in the book of beginnings, Genesis, when man fell. And I I tell you what, studying today for next week, I was so cranked about next week, I wanted to skip tonight. But I want to go into this tonight and share with you about the tragedy of the fall, paradise lost. And we're going to look at how Adam and Eve really did fall, how there really was a tragic cosmic catastrophe when man fell into sin. And so let's pray together, and then we're going to get into this and and see what the Bible has to say. Father, we just thank you tonight for the Word of God, and we pray that you'll speak to our hearts, and that you will, uh, Lord, I pray with all of my being that you'll renew our minds, that this church will have a biblical worldview. That is, we will see the world and see people through the lens of Scripture and not what secular humanists teach us about the world. Renew our thinking. Can you breathe a prayer right up to the Lord and say, Lord, renew my mind tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You can be seated. And um, let's look at this. Um, The Bible says, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. God finished His work. And on the seventh day, It says that God ended his work, which he had done. And what did he do, everybody? He rested on the seventh day from all of his work, which he had done. Now, it goes on and says in uh, verse 3 of chapter 2 of Genesis, Then God blessed the seventh day, and he sanctified it, because in it he rested from all of his work, which uh, God had created and made. What a powerful passage. Now, how many of you can tell the truth and admit that you struggle to have a day of rest? Let me see. You struggle to have a day of rest. Let let me ask another question. Well, that's most of you. Well, I better do a series on the Sabbath. (laughs) Now, let me ask you this question. How many of you honestly can say, you know what, Pastor Jeff, I feel tired more than I should? All right? All right. You know what? God has set principles into the universe. Now, I'm not here tonight to teach about the Sabbath. But if God rested, where are we? As a matter of fact, last time we saw that God's crowning creation was mankind. I want you to look at your neighbor and say, you're you're God's best. (laughs) Because I really mean that. You're God's best. The Bible shows us that special time and attention and focus were paid to God's creative act of man in his own image. God created you and I, unlike any other created creature, we are in His image. Very, very important. That makes you highly valuable, highly special. 
God did not send His Son to die for all the creatures of the universe. He sent His Son to die for men and women. All right, now, all the rest of creation had begun with these words, let there be, and it was. And how did God do it? By His Word, He spoke something out of nothing. Now, it didn't technically come from nothing because it came from God. But think about the creative process. When God said, let there be, uh, say, elephants, suddenly in time and space, there stood instantly a fully developed elephant. Ex nihilo, the Latin for out of something out of nothing, out of nothing, God said, let there be, and it was. And he did that with all of the created order until he got to humans. And when he came to humans, God said, instead of let there be, he said, let us make. And he <clears throat> called the, the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit to focus special attention. And there's the first indication of the Trinity in this verse. Let us make. And the whole focus of the Godhead came into being like a laser on creating humans. So God put special attention. Prior to man's creation, something was brought forth out of nothing, but man was created from the ground. Man didn't come from nothing. He didn't say, let there be man, and poof, there we were. God created man out of the ground. Look what it says in verse 7. And the Lord God formed man, of what, everyone? Of the dust of the ground. And after he had formed man from the dust of the ground, he breathed life into him. Wow. I just can't tell you, if you just stop and let the Word of God move you and think about it and let it, let it move your sanctified imagination, it's powerful what God did. Uh, breathe into an inanimate object a form made from the dust of the ground, and that form, that inanimate object that was not alive until God breathed into it suddenly became alive. And he became a what kind of a being? A living being. Wow. Now form, the word form, it says he formed him out of the dust of the ground. That word is from a Hebrew word used to describe a potter shaping a pot out of clay. Same word. You see it all throughout the Bible, that same Hebrew word. The hand of God literally fashioned man like a potter taking a lump of clay and fashioning it into something. God custom designed us. Evolution didn't do it. Evolution can't do it. And if you missed Wednesday before last and didn't get that CD when I really went into uh, a lot about the evolutionary issue, uh, go get it if you didn't get that and take it to a bunch of atheists that you know or some agnostics. Okay? Now, once again, when it says that God formed man from the dust of the ground, the Bible is completely contradicting the teaching of evolution. It is standing fully against evolution and saying, no way. From beginning to end in the creation story, everything is ascribed to direct acts of God no less than 46 times. 46 times God says, I did it. I made it. I created it. I made you. I created you. I created everything you see. I created everything in this world. 
everything you see, touch, taste, smell, are aware of, can sense, I created it. I made it. 46 times. So there's no way you can go with evolution and go with the Bible. It did not just happen with time and chance. Amen? Leave your, leave your garage empty and alone for a million years and tell me what's in it after a million years empty and alone. Let me tell you what's going to be in it. Dust. Nothing's going to be moving around in there alive that came from nothing. God made it. And the creation of the human body is especially shown to be a result of God's direct creative activity. I mean, he said, let us form man out of the dust of the ground, a creative act. No wonder David said, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, not fearfully and wonderfully evolved. Now, upon creating man, God gave to him several things. Let me just show you some things that God gave to man before the fall. First of all, he gave man a place to dwell, and he'll still do that today. Be it ever so humble. There is no place like home. But in the very beginning, God gave man a place to dwell. Man's first home was the beautiful, spectacular Garden of Eden. His final home will be a city. First home was a garden. Last home is going to be a city. Of this beautiful garden, uh, commentator John Phillips writes these words, and I could not uh, uh, improve on this, so I just put down what Mr. Phillips wrote. When Adam first opened his eyes to the light of day, he looked out upon a scene of matchless beauty and tranquility. The fields were emerald green, hedgerows ablaze with blossoms. The atmosphere was laden with the fragrance of flowers and the forests ringing with joyous song. It was pristine. Strolling through his vast estates, Adam could pause to see a wolf play tag with a lamb because they weren't carnivorous then could stop to romp with a jungle lion or to inhale the perfume of the most perfect rose that ever gladdened the eyes of man he could pause to pick a plum to prop a burdened vine to plant a peach tree to gaze with awe and wonder at the tree of life there it was when god breathed into him the breath of life and suddenly he was alive, he was greeted with an incredible scene. There it was. He might also wander by way of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, standing silent, mysterious, alone, the only tree forbidden to him in all his boundless domains. One thing God said, don't touch it. Don't have anything to do with it. Everything else, Adam, it's yours. Wow. So leave it to men to mess with that one thing. Now, the second thing that God gave to Adam was something to do. He didn't just give him a place to dwell. He gave him a job. He gave him a task. But it was not manual labor. It was not labor by the sweat of the brow. That came after the curse. He gave him a purpose, a meaning, a goal, something to do, something to be productive. Adam was given a specific task. Look what it says in verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend 
and to keep it. Now, Adam was to be a gardener and he was to be a guardian. God gave him a sense of responsibility, a challenging occupation, something meaningful and something worthwhile to do. Because listen, folks, he didn't just make, uh, make us to stand around and twiddle our thumbs. He made us to have a meaning and to produce because we were made in the image of God. And what does God do? He produces. So he gave us something that gave us meaning. That's why, man, if I was an evolutionist, it would drive me insane because you have no meaning. You just happened. You're not made for anything. Uh-uh. And God's will for man has not changed. We were made to accomplish something. Folks, I'm going to say it again. We were made to accomplish something. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that God preordained before the foundations of the world that you and I would be involved as redeemed people in good works. We were made to accomplish something, have a task, a goal, a purpose in life. If you take purpose away from people, they immediately become self-destructive. That's why you tell young people in all of our schools you are the result of evolution. You have no purpose. No wonder they're shooting it, snorting it, smoking it, drinking it. I read this week that pot and alcohol abuse have greatly arisen among young people. You know what? I don't blame them. If you're out there and you believe you're the result of evolution, you have no meaning, no purpose, no design, no intent. There's no destiny. That's a crazy maker. I'd love to go into the high schools and say, God custom designed you for a reason and for a purpose. You are special and you have value in the eyes of God. That would change them. But instead they say, I can't handle this. I got to escape. Now, productive work is of God. You know the Bible says, if a man should not work, he shall not eat. <laughs> Try that on for size in America. If you don't work... You don't eat. What would that do to welfare? Because there's a lot of people on welfare that can very much work. Now, I understand a, a brief time where you can't do it and you're looking for a job. I get it. But there are whole generations that perpetuate themselves living off of welfare, working the system. And that's compassion that kills. That is not compassion that makes people alive. People need a purpose. They need to see production coming out of their hands. They need to see something happening because they're alive. Productive work is of God. There's no worse hell than idleness. And if you want to give the devil an open room to tempt you with all kinds of things, get idle for a long time. The idle mind, as they say, is the devil's workshop. Now, Adam was also given a sacred trust. Look at this. Place to dwell, all right, a job to do, and a sacred trust. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Now notice, Eve's not here yet. He's talking to the dude. He's telling the man. He, he's giving him the word. There wasn't much word of God back then. Matter of fact, there was like one line, don't eat that tree. <laughs> I mean, that's easy to remember your Bible, isn't it? <laughs> what, did, what did God say? Don't eat that tree. Don't touch it. Everything else is yours, but don't eat that tree. So here's God talking to the man before the woman came along. He gives him the word of God. And 
He says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Now read the next part with me, everybody. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Did he say maybe? Did he say perhaps? He said, no, no. You will absolutely, for a fact, surely die if you touch it. Now, God gave to Adam total freedom on one hand and one solitary prohibition on the other. You can have everything I've made, Adam. It's all yours. You're, you're, the, you're the man. You're the head of, of this earth. I've put you over it, in charge of it. But you can't touch that tree. Now, you would think that he and the woman that was to come would say, well, hallelujah, we've got it all. Don't even look that way. We're going to get to that more next week than, than tonight, but let's move on. He was given all things richly to enjoy, as the Bible says. One thing and one thing only was reserved for God, and that was that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can't touch it. You can't have anything to do with it. Uh, all right, let me move ahead. A choice was placed before Adam, a necessary choice. Now listen carefully, because this used to really bother me. You know, if I'm God, why do I go ahead and make man if I know he's going to mess up? What am I after? Now, y'all follow me for a minute. Kick your minds into gear. Listen to me just for a second. Think about this. This used to really, and still, I, I kind of look up sometimes and go, God, I don't know that I would have done it. And how many of you say to yourselves every once in a while, if I was God, I'd wrap it all up right now? You ever say that? I used to say, you know, if you knew they were going to fall, and you knew all the tragedy that was going to come. Why did you do it? You, then you have to go this way. He was after something. God was after something. What was he after? He had to have moral creatures who chose to walk with him. Now, you can't be moral unless you have a choice. If you have no choice, there's no moral issue. You're an automaton. You're a robot that God just created to walk around and do what he wants. But God didn't want that. He wanted people who said, I will worship you. I will walk with you. I can make decisions. God gave you and I an awesome, awesome, overwhelming gift. And that was the gift of choice. Choice. He could not have been moral. He couldn't have been accountable without such power to choose. Without choice, he would have been an automaton, a puppet on a string, uh, uh, a trained animal. That's it. No moral choice. You and I, we have a choice, and God's left us with that choice. And we see the results of choices every day. Choices have consequences. Small and big ones have consequences in God's universe. God is a moral God, and God made us after his image as moral people. And we are moral people because we have a choice to obey or to disobey, life or death, to do right or to do wrong. God gave us that choice, and you've got that choice right now, and you'll have it to the day you die. 
God did not make a mechanical man. He made a moral man. What was he after? To take that risk. He was after people who choose him. Once the right to decide was invested in Adam, he became a moral being. But with that right, there was always the possibility that his power of choice would be abused. And we've all abused the power of choice, and so did Adam. So keep that in mind, because we're coming to the fall tonight and next week. And boy, is next week rich. It's so rich. Now, finally, God gave to Adam a companion to walk with. Every man in here say, Hallelujah. He gave Adam a companion to walk with. Now, first we see that God foresaw Adam's desire and need. I want you to understand tonight that when we look at this story in Genesis, God understands your desire and need and is aware of it before you are. He anticipated Adam's desire and need. It says, and the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. Well, Adam hadn't said that yet. God just looked at him and said, it's not good that he's alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Now, we see in the garden that the joining of a man with a woman was God's intent and plan. Now, folks, we're on holy ground here. And I'm really not meaning to be funny. And I know this is an old joke, but I I, got to go here because... This is the Word of God, and it's under such attack in our day. If it would have been better for God to bring Adam a man, he would have brought him a man. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm showing the Word of God to you tonight. If it had been better that God created a woman and brought her a woman... God would have done it because the Bible says he only does wondrous things and shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right. God did not bring Adam, Steve. I'm not trying to be funny. Stop a minute. He brought him Eve. My God knows what is best for me. God looked at Adam and said, it's not good that he's alone. All right, you're not alone. You shouldn't be alone, Adam. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring another man. That's not what he did. The whole idea of marriage originated with God. And so today, when people try to force you and I to agree with the concept of like genders marrying, and if we don't agree with that, then somehow we're backward and archaic and bigoted and judgmental and narrow-minded and all of this, I say, no, you got it all wrong. I just believe in honoring what God made. What He made. And there's no way you can bless the union of two men or two women. There is no way. Well, when this goes over the radio, am I going to have some emails. That's all right. Because you know what? I'm not ashamed or afraid to say it. Obviously, this was God's original plan. 
And, and last time I looked in the Bible, he doesn't change for any culture, any people, any race, any time period. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So therefore, the marriage of two of the same gender is a perversion of what God intended. Therefore, he placed within man a need to have that desire fulfilled. He wanted companionship. And he also undertook to meet that need. God did it all on his own. And Adam's desire, the desire that grew in him, was fostered by God. You know, God is a God that gives you desires. Now, there are unholy desires and there are holy desires. And my experience has been that when God wants you to do something, he gives you a desire to do it. God is the author of desires. He, he moves on the heart. Adam's desire was fostered by God. Here's how he found out that he wanted a companion. It says, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. This lets me know the spectacular intelligence of this first man because he literally named hundreds of thousands of creatures. Man, after 10 of them, I'm out of names. <laughs> But he's, got this, he's this, got this magnificent, unbelievable intelligence. I'm going Mark 1, Mark 2, Mark 3, Mark 4. But he's got a name for all these different things. Now look what it says. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, all the birds of the air, and every beast of the field. That's a lot of naming. But look what happened. But for Adam, now here he is, he's naming all these, and he goes, man, every one of these guys has a girl. Every one of these males has a female. And as he kept naming these names and naming all these creatures, he finally said, hey, I'm alone. I want a mate like they have. So God fostered the desire and as Adam named all these creatures, he made the simple observation. They all had a mate. He, on the other hand, had none. God deliberately awakened in Adam a sense of need and awareness that he hungered for human companionship. And above all, that he needed and wanted a wife. He needed and wanted a wife. Now, here's a spiritual nugget for you. God never awakens a desire that he cannot and will not satisfy in his own good time and way. God never awakens in you a desire that he cannot, cannot and will not satisfy in his own good time and his own good way. The trick is waiting on God to do it and trusting him. If you just wait on him and trust him and stay in prayer and don't get in the flesh, God will do it. God will do it. Adam's desire was fulfilled by God. Matthew Henry beautifully states, that the woman was taken from Adam's side, not from his head to rule over him, not from his feet to be trampled on, but from his side to be equal with him, from under his arm to be protected, from close to his heart to be loved. Now that's a nice way to put it. And God had to put Adam to sleep or he had to try to get involved in the process. So he knocked the dude out. He anesthetized him before there was such a thing. He said, you're going down and out while I do this. And so he fell asleep. And God opened up his side, took out a rib, 
and from that rib created the woman. He came from the dust, she came from the rib. So you can't tell me they're the same. Male and female are very different. Now, the creation of woman was attested to by Jesus Christ himself. Jesus said, he answered and said to them, Have you not read what he, that he who made them, plural, at the beginning made them male and female? He made the genders. God made the two genders to be very different but complementary at the same time. That's the work of God. And Jesus amended it and attested to it. Now the Bible teaches that woman, rather than being taken from the dust of the ground, was formed out of the rib of the man, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. This was surgery. Then the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And she was named when he saw her and said, Whoa, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> because God brought. <laughs> wasn't that terrible? I can't resist. But God brought. I mean, he wakes up, you know, he doesn't know what all's been going on. God's been doing surgery on him, took one of his ribs out, sealed him back up. And all of a sudden, this woman comes walking towards him. What else are you going to say? Come on, guys, say it with me. Whoa, man. Some of you guys were too holy. You couldn't hardly spit it out. Whoa. Now, God performed himself the first wedding ceremony. Adam opened up his eyes at last to gaze into the face of the woman God had created especially for him. I'm going to tell you something. This was a, a spectacular moment. Adam said, look what he said. He knew Somehow what had happened, he said, this is now bone of my bones. He knew what she came from. And this is flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, whoa, man, because she was taken out of man. That's just powerful. That's why the two shall become one. That's why in a divorce, there is no easy divorce. In a divorce, it is a ripping and a tearing. It is not a smooth sail. It's a ripping and a shredding and a tearing. Because the two have become one. And it's not any better illustrated than the way she was created. Out of the very rib. From his innermost being, she came. Therefore, Jesus said, shall a man leave his father? Or Adam said this. This came out of the mouth of Adam. This is his wedding vow. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall be one flesh. This guy was moved. This was Adam's wedding vow. So the Bible describes the world's earliest wedding. It took place in paradise and it was planned by God and overseen by God. It's what God sanctioned. It embodied the highest and the holiest of ideals. It set forth the absolute of a man and a woman marrying in the presence of God. If its ideals seem too high for you and for me tonight or for our culture, which is really more and more doing away with marriage, 
It is because we have strayed so far from Adam's garden home. This is what God intended. Adam and Eve. One man, one woman, for life. Well, pastor, I've been through a divorce. God's a God of new beginnings. I'm not in any way condemning anybody. I came from a home that went through four divorces. My parents, uh, four marriage divorces. I was knocked around like a ping pong ball as a kid. I know the pain of divorce. I've seen it. I'm just showing you the ideal. And so if you've been through a divorce and now you're remarried, guess what? You're, you're, a, you're a first-time married person in God's eyes. He's as much for your marriage now as he was the one that didn't make it. And there's no condemnation. But in the meantime, we fight for marriage we stand for marriage, we will preach marriage, and we will stand by the Word of God that clearly, explicitly, all the way back in the beginning, shows us that God created the two genders, brought them together in the garden, in marriage, and blessed it. Amen? Amen. Now, the Bible says that after this, let me see what time it is real quick. Everybody say amen. Okay, we're doing good. Look at your neighbor and say, we're doing good. The Bible says that after this, God rested, not because he was tired, but because his work of creation was finished. Moses later used the the concluding day of the creation week to introduce the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week, during which all Israelites and all of us were to abstain from work in order to devote ourselves completely to God. And I believe that is just as valid today. Now, soon, though, that rest would be interrupted by a cosmic catastrophe. God was resting, and all of a sudden, the news came. It came into the places of glory, into God's heavenly throne room. A universal tragedy, the fall of man into sin. Contrary to the popular idea that man is on the way up, that he is continually evolving into a better place, I want to tell you tonight, folks, he is not. Watch the news. He is a creature who has suffered from a devastating fall. His basic nature is not good but evil. All his innermost being has been disorientated by sin. You do not have to teach your children to be bad. You have to teach them to be good. You don't have to teach them to lie. You have to teach them not to lie. You don't have to teach them to to not respect you. You have to teach them to respect you. Why? Because we are born in sin, shaped in iniquity. We have inherited Adam's fallen nature. And and, And it's so important we see each other, and the world this way. No Bible passage makes this clearer than Proverbs 16, 25. It says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Do you know what that is saying? That man is so turned around, so affected by the fall, that what looks right to you and to me actually kills us. Without the Word of God and the Holy Ghost living inside of you, we are all in big trouble because our compass is backwards. What we think is good is bad. What we think is going to help us will, more times than not, kill us. Because we inherited that nature. The Bible confronts us with this truth at the very outset and keeps it in front of us throughout the entirety of the Bible that man is by nature a fallen being and a sinner. And you'll never get saved until you admit that.
Now, no person can ever properly understand human nature who fails to take into account this most basic of all the laws of human nature, and that is the law of sin. Now, the Bible reveals, however, that sin did not begin on earth with Adam. It began in heaven. The mystery of iniquity did not originate within the heart of a human being. The first sin did not begin with Adam. The first darkened blight on God's creation did not begin with Adam. It began in the heart of the archangel Lucifer. Very important. According to Ezekiel 28, 12, Lucifer was next to God, the most brilliant being in the universe, possessed of the highest of all created intelligence. He was a musician. He was a mighty, glowing, shining archangel. Lucifer, the light bearer. And at some point in pre-creation history, he rebelled against God, which is described by Isaiah, who says, How are you fallen from heaven, Lucifer, son of the morning? How you are cut down to the ground, Lucifer. You who weaken the nations, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. Here's the first sin. I will ascend into heaven, exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation of the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like God. And the prophet says, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, which is hell, to the lowest depths of the pit. Your destiny, Lucifer, is now everlasting hell. Jesus testified that he witnessed this fall of Satan, this judgment of Satan and his rejection from heaven. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, like a meteorite, like a comet. He was cast from heaven to the earth or to some area, some realm, where he became a disembodied spirit and cursed of God. Now a fallen creature, Satan retains his wisdom, but it's a wisdom that is warped, bent, and twisted by sin. He is now, has always been, and always will be the avowed enemy of God and of God's people. And if you love Jesus, there's a target on you. He hates you for it. Therefore, sin entered the Garden of Eden full grown, introduced there by Satan, disguised as a serpent. Three chapters into the Bible, the serpent first appears. And three chapters from the end of the Bible, he is seen for the last time. The results of his work are seen on every page in between. The tragedy begins this way, and let's look at it before we close tonight. Here's the tragedy beginning in Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said to who? Did he go to the man? He didn't go to the man. He went to the woman. Subtle means wise. The being that approached Eve was more than a match for her. Except for one thing, Eve had the Word of God. And with that Word to guide her, she was more than a match for her foe. All of the craft and superior intelligence of her foe would have availed nothing had she simply clung to the Word of God and said to the devil, Thus says the Lord. Satan's mode of attack was to Eve's intellect based on subtlety. It had been God's intention that leadership should be invested in Adam. Eve was created second, not first. She was not made for headship, but for heartship. Ladies, I want you to know 
I hope you can love me after I say this. You're more easily deceived. You know why? Because of your heart. And guys know that. They know that. Baby, baby, I love you. And we're going to make a life together. And all the while, he's trying to get you into that bedroom. Now listen to me. I'm just telling you. There's a reason the devil went to the woman and not the man. Because he's intellect driven. It's not meaning his, he's smarter. It's just saying he's more logical. The woman has a heart that the man doesn't have. That's why the Bible says, husbands, love your wives and women, respect your husband. The Bible knows you don't have a problem with love, but you do have a problem with respect because he doesn't live up to your ideals. But he says to the man, you're going to have to, you're going to have to exercise love because you're too logical. Click, click, beep, beep. You're like a robot. All right? So her innermost center of rule was her heart. And Adam, on the other hand, was made to rule. His innermost center of the rule was his intellect. That, uh, this is not to say that the male is smarter than the female. I want to be clear about that so I don't get emails. It means that the man is primarily intellect logic driven, while the woman is primarily heart emotion driven. Just let you and your spouse, you and your wife, sir, drive up on a wreck, a bad wreck. The woman's going to immediately be going, oh, my Lord, are there children in there? Are they hurt? Are they bleeding? Are they dead? Are they okay? What can we do? The guy's going to be going, click, click, beep, beep. How can I get them out? How bad was the wreck? What kind of car was that? Their response to the tragedy is two different responses because we're made differently. God made the man out of the dust, the woman out of the rib. He made two different genders. Satan twisted God's order in attacking the woman first with an argument about right and wrong. He thoroughly deceived her and plunged the race into ruin. I'm going to stop right there. I think I've given you all enough to see law for a night. <laughs> Let's stand up and I'll finish this next week. And it is good stuff. Don't miss next week because it is good. And I'm going to show you exactly what he used. Now, you all listen carefully to me. I'm going to show you next time exactly what the devil used to take that woman down. And I'm going to show you that he hasn't changed his approach one iota. Same bag of tricks. How many of you needed this tonight? All right. How many of you are glad that he made us male and female? Amen. How many of you are glad he made you what you are? Hey. Now that response concerns me. You ought to rejoice. If you're a guy, you ought to rejoice in your maleness. If you're a woman, you ought to rejoice in your femaleness. God made you what you are. I can see by Kathy's look, we're having a talk on the way home. <laughs> no, we're good. Let's thank the Lord. Father, we just thank you right now that you made us male and female. That, Lord, you did perform the first wedding ceremony. That you do bless the marriage of a man and a woman. And we pray for our culture, Lord, that is so sexually confused, so woefully sexually confused. 
that you will bring a revival of truth. And we thank you, Lord God, for even though the fall took place, you sent a Redeemer. And we thank you that that Redeemer has washed us of our sin. In Jesus' mighty name, let's sing one stanza. Sing it with me, everybody. God is so good.